The views and opinions expressed by hosts, invited speakers, and callers do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Black Talk Media Project or the Black Talk Radio Network. Lift your eyes up, let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times at this time. Rise up, rise up. When death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the beast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up. When famine claims millions, when justice gives blind eyes. Peace and welcome to New Abolitionist Radio, a program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate on the issue of 21st century slavery. Hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parthas, with New Abolitionist and Actionist Johanan Elias and Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking, along with projects and people who help combat it. Today is January 6, 2016, our first show of the year. Our stories include emails show that City Hall, Chicago Police coordinated response to the shooting of Chicago teen Laquan McDonald by police officer Jason Van Dyke. The Ohio town of Arlington Heights has disbanded their entire police department following an investigation that showed funds from tickets issued by cops in the town's notorious speed trap were being embezzled by city workers. Calling former North Charleston police officer Michael Slager a threat to the community, leaders of four groups called on solicitor Scarlett Wilson to appeal his bail and demanded police chief Eddie Driggers be fired. Slager was released yesterday after providing $50,000 on a $500,000 cash bond. Standing Front and center, representing Charleston's Black Lives Matter organization and the new abolitionist was our brother Muradin Ibaha. Chicago City lawyer intentionally hid evidence that two police officers did not suspect Darius Penix of a crime before they shot him dead. And uh, we're a little out of order, and we had to postpone it last week. But tonight we dropped the bomb in our America is Ferguson series, Ohio. Is Ferguson. This week's rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad is George Junius Stinney Jr. 70 years after South Carolina executed a 14-year-old boy so small he sat on a book in an electric chair in December of 2014, a circuit court judge threw out his murder conviction. Our abolitionist in profile tonight is Kohana Otobo Kuguano, 1757- to sometime after 1791, a formerly enslaved African who advocated freedom by any means necessary, including the use of violence, and he was the first African to demand the total abolition of slavery. You can expect all of that and more tonight on New Abolitionist Radio. You can find archive podcasts at newabolitionistradio.blogspot.com. We invite you to join the conversation by calling us at 1641 715 3660. Extension 
Pound. Just press star six and one. Get you up from the conference line. Well, again, I'm Max Parthas. What's happening, brother Scotty? Is your hunter with us today? Face, face. Can you hear me? There he is. Face, brother. I hear you. All right. Hey, what's going on, guys? Um, just struggling today. <laughs> Wednesday nights or uh, Wednesdays always my busiest day, and then especially after um, you know a new month has begun, as I gotta gather up you know all the statistical reports for the station as well as you know the social media uh, pages and and how many people we're reaching through the various means that we use we utilize to try to reach people you know with our messages so um other than that i ain't got no complaints good to hear your voice on the start up there Johanna. what you do run home real quick with that car man like 99 an hour like forget football. <laughs> i'm getting home man <laughs> <laughs> yeah things have changed up just a little bit now as we said into the into the winter months um so i'm on a little bit a little bit different schedule uh, as it so happens today so i'm able to be in here right on time with you all so um i don't i don't know how it's gonna go fellas i've been trying to uh keep myself um you know uh, under under control man but uh all this going on all these uh shots we keep taking all this uh all the shots that we that we taking in uh friendly fire right here within the camp with us <laughs> Everything that's going on around us, man, it's just I don't know how people are keeping their sanity, to be honest with you. It's it's crazy. So we might as well get into it if y'all ready. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, it, over here, it's been a little while for us. Uh, I, I do want to apologize once again to our audience if I sound a little strange. It's because I'm using a cell phone at this time instead of my usual uh, hookup. Our Internet is useless here. I might as well be on a mountain in the Himalayas. And uh, we're trying to find alternatives to sound something, but it's going to be very costly for us. So it may take us some time. Hopefully you bear with me in the meantime. It's the information that matters, not the sound of my voice. Well, yeah, man, I've been kind of, uh, my mind has been a little bit blown by what I've been seeing as of late. Oregon, you know, jumping up in the national headlines and what's going over there. Oh, uh, yeah, there's some breaking news on there. Oh yeah. Yeah, the sheriff of that county said that they will face federal charges and whatnot. But as far as I know, they still waiting them out. And again, I'm not advocating any violence or any harm to these people, even though they're a bunch, probably a bunch of racist assholes. If they're anything like their daddy, Mister Bundy, you know, Clyde <laughs> Bundy. Right. So it's not that I empathize with them, but I believe in ju practicing justice versus non-justice. And so, you know, they aren't putting anybody' life in imminent danger, so it's no need to go in there and slaughter them, which I know they ain't gonna do to begin with. But uh, the sheriff over that county says that they will be facing federal charges. Uh, whenever this saga ends and, and you know I just saw this guy and I'm getting very disappointed in cop block you know cop block there's different pages uh, but there's cop block is one of the oldest pages that you know shines a light on police terrorism in this country but you know I have questioned some of the things that they have been sharing here lately and they shared mm -hmm. they, they shared this video of this bearded white man uh, look like Grizzly Adams or somebody, 
And he takes <laughs> on there to say how these guys ain't terrorists, which I agree, they're not terrorists. All right. And, and, and so, but then he wants to say that we shouldn't believe the liberal media about them being terrorists and they're standing up to the U.S. government uh, for all our rights and they're not black, like Black Lives Matter and they're not burning up and tearing down their towns and, and you know, just really then starting to repeat all of the demonization and propaganda coming from mainstream media about Black Lives Matter. And whatnot, and, and and so you know, and Cop Block shared that, and I was pleased to see that quite a number of the people who follow that page on Facebook let them have it and told them, you know, why did you share this? This dude ain't got a clue. He 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 using racialized language. He want to talk about people using labels, calling themselves black or whatever. And we've heard that from you know the usual racist suspects out there. And again, but then isn't, you know, they want to, they only talk about labels or names when it applies to black people or quote unquote African Americans, but they don't say nothing about the Irish Americans. They don't say nothing about Italian Americans using those labels. They don't say nothing about these Irish boys running around with, with four leaf clovers and all tatted up or wearing green hats and drinking green beer. <laughs> Not the four leaf clover. <laughs> yeah, on, on St. Patrick's Day and whatnot. Only when it comes to black people. But it, you know, right. it isn't American a label as well? Just like French is a label or a British citizen is a label? So, you know, it don't, they only complain about labels when black people don't want to assimilate, you know, and, and, and identify with them. But, you know, like in the abolitionist movement, we are people of all different political persuasions, uh, uh, racial ethnicities, religious classifications. We got a pretty diverse group, even though, you know, the membership is dominated by, by people who classify themselves as black or African descended. But we do have diversity in our group. And, and you know, I want to just close out on my little opening rant there that, you know, we might have made history last week with the first abolitionist meeting, although it was virtual and it was online, but we used, you know, the platform Blab to have a abolitionist meeting that we're going to have every Saturday night. And, um, you know, I, I was just really pleased about that, man. And then think about it, you know, although, again, it was virtual, it, you know, it was probably the first national abolitionist meeting ever held. You may be right on that, brother. We've been making history uh, regularly here in the abolitionist movement. Uh, so you may be very well right. The first abolitionist meeting held since the 18th, late 1800s. Hmm. That's what's up, Scotty. If hey. I may, uh, if oh, excuse me, Max. I'm sorry. If if I may, uh, yeah. If I may, uh, just kind of piggyback on that, which you or really what the opening thing we've been talking about with the ranchers and whatnot. I got a link from a brother, uh, uh, brother Kendrick uh, sent over a link to me, uh, showing me this article talking about how PETA is going out to the standoff and offering these people. These ranchers, you know, cattle ranchers largely, uh, offering them vegan uh, jerky snacks to the cattle ranchers and trying to get them to, to convert from animal agriculture. And so that brings me immediately to, to mind um, 
what we talked about on Political Prisoner Radio uh, when you had me on as a as a as a guest host with you, Scotty. I know you remember when we were talking about the the folks that are locked up on federal charges right now for protesting uh, the animals. animals. What's that? Freeing animals. Yeah, pro. So we covered, and I don't know if you can remember it. I I could probably find it and post it in the New Abolitionist Radio on the page. But I don't know if you can remember the name of the actual legislation. But but we talked about on that program. Was it the Animal Enterprise Act, something like that? Yeah, that sounds like that may be what it is. Um, where the legislation says that it is uh, a federal crime for you to effectively protest these companies and cause them to lose any revenue as a result of your protesting. That's a federal crime. I found it. And you did? Yes. Okay. It is known and as the so animal. That goes along with uh, that goes along with if you remember when uh when Oprah went through hell with the cattle ranchers talking about how uh she wouldn't go ever ever eat beef again when she saw the you know the treatment of the animals to make it and they they damn near put Oprah out of business back in the day behind that. So I'm just looking at how things play out. Like Peter that showed up on the scene and they could potentially face federal charges because you know if they affected if they could show they affected the bottom line, that law could be enforced on them just like it was on the people we talked about on political prisoner radio. So it's a trip, man. Let me read that. It's the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act. It is statute number eighteen US uh USC uh, 43, that prohibits any person from engaging in certain conduct, conduct for the purpose of damaging or interfering with the operations of an animal, animal enterprise. The statute covers any act that either damages or causes the loss of any real or personal property or places a person in reasonable fear of injury. Now, they could, a prosecutor, the U.S. attorney could apply that to them because the building that they're occupying is the Bureau of Land Management, which also encompasses the wildlife that's on those public lands. They did, I'm sure they damaged the building to get into the building. And again, I'm yeah. not calling them terrorists and I'm not calling for this this uh for them to be charged under this terrorism act. But again, we have highlighted, you know, animal rights activists on Political Prisoner Radio who, like, you know, went into these compounds allegedly. Let me say allegedly. The government said that they set some animals free that was being tested on and, and whatnot. And, and, you know, they uh, uh, had some bolt cutters in the car and whatnot and had been cutting, you know, the chains on cages and letting these animals free that. Uh, whatever corporation was using them for animal testing, the test on on these animals, and they were charged. I can't remember the guy's name because we cover so many cases, but they were charged mm. under the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act. And so, yeah, that's what you were talking about. I do remember. Yeah. You know, I, I would uh, like to piggyback on what you said as well, Scotty, and to uh, add to it. First of all, I divide people around me into two piles. Abolitionist, not abolitionist. That's really it right there for me. Either you can see it or you can't. If you can't see it, you need some working on it. And as far as cop block is concerned, I unfriended them and broke away from them a while back. I started seeing some things that bothered me a lot, particularly from the people who were running the things and how they spoke about the cops in particular. Uh, and then finally, they put out this video or series of videos now where they have white men 
dressed in weird costumes go and harass police. Like they'll have one dressed up as a donate donut and uh, have the police chase him. And to them, this is freaking funny. You know what I mean? To show that the whole world how their privilege can allow them to do this stupid, ridiculous stuff. But if these are black people that are doing anything even closely resembling this, like uh, the brother that got shot during the cosplay <clears throat> situation, where they chased him down and shot, he'd be dead. So for me, that I thought that was just uh, insensitive and unthinking, and I don't think they gave a damn. So uh, I broke away from them a while ago. I don't see them necessarily as on the same page that we're on. Right on. Well, I know we have a, a regular uh, listing of, of uh, stories that we did want to get into, so I know we kind of started off on that. Uh, we're going to yeah. go into the Chicago City Hall. Uh, yep, go ahead and grab a hold of that, brother. Right on. Well, um, we got a, uh, a story from News One that's uh, talking about uh, this situation in Chicago, and there's about a thousand stories that could come out of Chicago at any one given time right about now. It's I don't even know. I don't even know how they are able to to um, claim that they are upholding any rule of any law when it's so corrupt from the top damn down. Like I can't. Yeah, I don't even yeah. know how the people. Yeah, Johanna, let I, me I play know. this audio clip. I got an audio clip for that. It's not. You want to play that one first? Yeah, okay. it's not wrong. It, I mean, it's not long. You're talking about the Chicago email mayor email scandal, right? Yeah, here. with Rahm Emanuel. Okay, uh -huh. yeah. Let me go ahead and play that. The Chicago Tribune has obtained emails that show the Rahm Emanuel administration scrambled to counter criticism after police dash cam footage was made public, as tensions continue in Chicago over the handling of the police shooting of 17-year-old Laquan McDonald. The emails show that Mayor Emanuel's office delayed the release of the dashboard camera video of the incident, then scrambled to stem a tide of public criticism. The city withheld the video until a Cook County judge ordered it be made public. Hmm. So from this from this story, uh, his main thing he was trying to say, like they all do until you prove them, uh, until you prove what they do. And then all of a sudden, you know, they start backtracking. He tried to say he didn't know anything about the uh, murder of uh, Laquan McDonald. Uh, he hadn't seen the videotape anyway, you know, but uh, says a while a man. And again, this from News One says, while Emmanuel denies seeing dash cam video of, of Laquan of McDonald's murder until it was released in November. The Thursday release of 3,000 pages of emails between officials in the mayor's office, the police department, and the department reviewing the shooting showed that his advisors were fully aware that the case could, quote-unquote, be politically explosive. That's from the Associated Press. It says the email showed that his staff was, quote-unquote, scrambling on how to deal with and react to the shooting, especially when the media and community activists began ringing the alarm. Even the White House was concerned. Elias Alcantara, the White House's associate director for the Intergovernmental Affairs, for Intergovernmental Affairs, sent the following note back in November. It says, I hope all is well and sorry for the Sunday email. We've been tracking the media coverage of the Laquan McDonald case and would like an update. Do any of you have a minute to jump on the phone and provide an update on the situation, hoping to get an update to the team here later this afternoon? Other emails showed the following. In December 2014, Scott Ando, head of the Independent Police Review Authority, sent an email to Mayor Deputy Chief of Staff, to the Mayor's Deputy Chief of Staff, Jane, Janie Roundtree, 
with a link to the website that had raised serious doubts about Van Dyke's accounting of the shooting. Says the IPRA, the Independent Police Review Authority, which is supposed to distance themselves from police department and mayor's office, sent internal emails asking if they should forward transcripts from their investigations into the city to the city to help in negotiations with the McDonald's family. They're trying to prepare to what kind of gifts, what kind of lotto tickets to give to these folks for murdering their child. Do, do people see? Do people see the pattern? See, we don't sit up here and just talk a bunch of shit. We don't sit up here and just talk crazy and and speak out of emotion. Yes, you become emotional because it pisses you off. But we only sit here and give you the absolute facts. Can you even believe that I'm reading this to you right now? There was this one part where they said the uh, before the ruling of whether or not the dash cam would become public record, there was a draft <laughs> of a speech being oh. written for Emmanuel about the video, a video that he claimed he never he never saw. Kid, oh my God, man! In the city with a damn reparations fund, there is is, is a little piss ass five million dollars for hundreds and hundreds of people black males predominantly black folks almost overwhelmingly who had been railroaded into prison yes mm -hmm. tortured into confessing had they balls literally smashed with hammers had they bodies lit on fire and and hit with fire from torches and all kind of crazy uh, uh what's that a uh, medieval tortures or whatever to get people to confess that, the crimes they didn't don't, commit don't forget conveniently there was an election that went on while this was being hit because if this had come out during the election, we all know right. that it would have been a very much different conclusion about what who would be running things right now. And, you know, the only reason they even said anything is because of the protesters, the ones that people right. say ain't really getting nothing done. Right. These were the people they were fearing. And if you extrapolate, extrapolate from that, it's not really the protesters they're fearing. It's the protesters bringing to the forefront, the criminality being uh, played out against the people of Chicago and America in general, where they are killing you in the streets. And all those gun-toting, middle-class Americans actually rising up and starting shooting somebody else in turn. That's what they're afraid of in the long run of things, because I don't think a, a protest sign scares the mayor of Chicago. But people becoming aware of how crooked your ass is, and how deadly and how you're using dead bodies of young black men in order to get your election? Yeah, that's enough to, to, to start a civil war. Yeah. Well, shout out to We Charge Genocide, uh, the, the young group uh, we had come on the program uh, last year. Was it last year, early last year, when they had gone over to yeah. uh, Geneva? Uh -huh. Yep. Uh, so, yeah, definitely shout out to them. We know that they are definitely uh, on the ground, you know, and and this again is a difference in how I uh, I try to be diplomatic, you know. Even though I may sound like I'm ranting sometimes against some of these groups, but like these young folks came in, we've identified some areas, you know, and identified some things to them that maybe they weren't aware of 100. percent And I've seen them implement aspects of what we discussed on this program into what they're doing, and they are affecting change. They really did have an effect on that mayoral race, and for all we know, that race wasn't even legit. That people could have could have legit voted for somebody else. I mean, we don't have any way of knowing that that the that the people's interest was really uh, demonstrated, you know, in in what went down with Emmanuel getting reelected. 
But at any rate, at any rate, shout out to them. I know they fighting and, and got their feet on uh, boots on the ground yeah, over there. Yeah, shout out to them, and that's why I, I say, man, we need to, especially with these young people and uh, these these young groups and whatnot. We need to temper our criticism. Not saying we can't criticize, but what I'm saying is it needs to be constructive, and we need to look at it in a historical context because you know. The Black Panther Party, you know, which is one of the most respected, in my view, of all of the black-led freedom movements uh, during any period, you know, they start, they didn't, they didn't, you know, it, it took them a while to uh, work up to all the different survival programs and the things that they were doing to, uh, you know, address the ills in the community, and they were involved in politics as well so we you know i just tell people just be careful you know uh uh, uh taper your criticism because these are young people and it ain't like we you know and when i say we i'm using that in a general term it's not like we've been providing any kind of training for them or any classes for them and all the revolutionaries most of the revolutionaries that have experience in these things are political prisoners so right, right. you know, and, and, and so we have to be careful about not discouraging uh, our young people who are doing something, who are doing more yeah. than what some of their yeah, peers have ever done and whatnot. But th- I, I want to get back to the to this story. Look, if I, if Max, if Johanan, let, let's say I went out there and I shot and killed somebody, right? I went out there and killed the slave catcher. All right. And Max and, and, and Matt and, and Johanna, I came to them and I said, man, I killed this slave catcher, man. I, I, I need to get out this area. You know anybody? You know, and y'all helped me cover up what I did or y'all assisted me in any kind of way. All you, both of you would be brought up on conspiracy charges after the mm-hmm. fact. Now, here we have a mayor along with members of the city council, along with the police department along with the independent review board or whatever it's supposed to be, because we know a brother got fired from that who had said that the Laquan McDonald case, along with others, he ruled that they were unjustified homicides. And that and, and, and they covered that up and fired him to keep it quiet. So we got all of these different parties who were a conspiracy to cover up the murder of this young man. Why, uh, including Anita Alvarez, who was more than happy to let him sit behind a desk while they pretend like they're doing an investigation until the, you know, until the story uh, fades away. Because, again, you know, the Chicago government in whole, all of them, were fighting to keep that video from being made publicized. It was only after it was publicized that any action on the behalf of the government came. So they are participants in the cover-up. And the people that's calling for Rahm Emanuel or anybody else to resign, you also need to be calling for a special prosecutor to charge them with the crime of helping to cover up this murder after the fact. If it was you or me helping somebody cover up a murder, you better believe that we would be charged and prosecuted. So that that's what I well, wanted to add. You know, people calling for for resignations. How about prosecutions? Right. Scotty, that's one of the things we'll see that is a theme week after week, story after story, in particularly tonight's stories, where every turn 
there is this conspiracy to allow these criminals to participate in a murder and then walk away with a resignation or being fired or just getting death duty. It's, it's, they just let them get away with murder, literally. Once in a while, they will sacrifice somebody on the lower end of the totem pole, but not too often. So we'll see this theme happen over and over again tonight. So pay close attention to it in these stories. And uh, also, when you were talking about prosecutions, yes, the people in, who are involved should all be prosecuted, but this is a national issue. It's not just Chicago. We need what's really close to the equivalent of the Nuremberg trials, because that's how deeply embedded and how far uh, stretching that this level of corruption has gone. Just the America is Ferguson series shows you that every state in the union is involved in this type of corruption. And some states are so bad that there's a genocide going on and the uh, National Guard should have already been called in to rescue the people from the dangers they face. Hmm. Yeah, <laughs> they should. But I, I don't know. Man. We can. Are, are, so are we? Um, are we moving to? Are we going to try to move to the next? Yeah, one? Yeah, let's go let's go to the next one. Uh, we got three minutes before our next break. Well, minutes. actually, we so, got a minute, so, so uh, less than a minute. So let's go ahead and take that now. All right, okay. you're listening to New Abolitionist Radio. We'll be right back after this. You are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, we were just talking about what's going on in Chicago, and now we're going to move on over to Ohio. We just pull this page up here. And uh, I'll give you the story that we got from Raw Story. Uh, now, you know, we tell you week in and week out how these counties, cities, communities are using uh, the law enforcement arm of their government and the government itself in order to fund their coffers on the backs of the poor, particularly with things like the traffic tickets and uh peonage uh, situations and debtors prisons that they go, got going on. Well, let me tell you what just happened in Ohio. I got a clip, Max. Oh, oh. I got a clip for that. Got a clip? One. Yeah, I got a clip right, for well, that one. But but let me just say this. And I know your heart and my heart is with the poor, but a lot of people don't empathize with the poor in this country. But it's not just happening to the poor. It happened in the middle class families, too. You know what I'm saying? Because I'm, I'm, I'm sure everybody in Ferguson wasn't poor. You know, some of them people, they might be classified as the working poor, but it, ha mm -hmm. it, it, it happens all over. Look, I live in a predominantly white county and yeah, a whole bunch of them are on food stamps, but there's a lot of wealthy people around here, too. And they have the, the checkpoints and the ticket writing schemes and the speed traps and all of that. So it's happening to everybody, just some more than others. But yes, we do have a clip. I'm going to go ahead and roll that now. Well, a new year means new faces will keep the peace on the streets of Arlington Heights. As I found out during a visit today to the small village sandwiched between I-75, news of a police shakeup will probably come as a surprise to some residents. People who call Arlington Heights home haven't noticed a series of notices posted on the wall of the village's town hall. They probably don't know their police department no longer exists. 
I actually didn't. Actually, you today was the first that I heard about that. While not explaining the rationale for the move, this document, an emergency measure, says the Hamilton County Sheriff's Department will provide police protection for the village starting at the start of the new year. It's obviously a money situation. Money has been tied in Arlington Heights for some time. In 2012, two former workers for the village were indicted on charges of stealing cash from the community's bottom line. But in an odd twist, the village's current website suggests all is well, thanking deputies for lending a hand, but adding, quote, the village has recently acquired four new officers and is glad to have their own patrol officers back on the job. While he now knows those words are outdated, resident Q Sider says he, for one, could do more to stay informed. If I was actually a better citizen, I'd probably go to the meetings once a month and actually know what was going on. Uh, a spokesman for the Sheriff's Department told me the ink is still drying on that contract with Arlington Heights and that more details will be released in the coming days. We'll certainly keep you posted. Well, let me give you some of the details about what they were uh, doing in Ohio, in this Ohio uh, village that weren't included on the clip. Uh, first of all, Deputy Claire, uh, Clerk Laura Jarvis and her mother, Donna Colbert, a former clerk, were recently sentenced for absconding with more than $260,000 in traffic fines. This little village of 800 people. According to the state auditors, the two have been depositing traffic fines to their own accounts instead of the village bank account. Now, mind you, what's really happening is the village is robbing the people, and these two are robbing the village. The two were able to hide the large amount of dollars taken because the small town, population 800, is home to a speed trap conducted by local cops along the brief I-75 corridor that runs by the town. Now, if you've ever been stopped on I-75 in Ohio near this town, uh, Arlington Heights, you should consider suing them right now. Arlington Heights' reputation as a speed trap town was so bad that Hamilton County Prosecutor Joe Dieter's call for the village's dissolution in 2012 said replacing the cops with officers from Hamilton County Sheriff's Department was a good move. Personally, I think they didn't need cops, period. You only got 800 people. Really? And those 800 people in this village were robbing the people coming through I-75 blind. Robbing them blind. But they didn't know that they themselves were getting robbed. They were making so much money that these people could walk away with $260,000 and it would barely be noticed. Hmm. Damn, man. What I did well, I mean, hear. Is, oh, go ahead, go ahead, Scotty. What I didn't hear from what you read, Max, is any prosecutions uh, other than the two None. who got caught with the hand in the cookie jar. None, and that's what I said. Every story is the same thing. These people walk away scot free after participating in this oppressive uh, conspiracy where the entire freaking town is in on it. I want to see a racial breakdown. I want to know how, how many black drivers, how many Hispanic drivers, and how many white drivers were ticketed. I want to know who, what their names was and who they were so they can be informed about what was done to them illegally. And now, mind I, you, this is only a town of 800. If I was what in Cleveland... What do you think doing in a town like New York of 8 million or 10 million? Yeah. If you live in one of those cities that, uh, like Cleveland, I don't know how far Cleveland is from there... But we know Timothy Lowman, the uh, officer who uh, who killed Tamir Rice, 
Uh, he was at one of these little small town police departments before he got fired, and we see where he ended up. So all those cops that got fired at Arlington and not prosecuted, they'll probably show up at another police department near you. Same and as thing. we showed last week, most of the jails being filled up are being filled up in small towns like this. Yeah, it's the same thing happened with Darren Wilson. He was a police officer in Jennings, Missouri, before they went out of business. The city shut them down for the same corruption, the same BS, the same. It's the same thing every time. And where did he go? Ferguson Police Department. Where did he do? Killed Michael Brown. Made a couple million dollars for doing interviews and through GoFundMe crowdfunding uh, accounts and retired a wealthy man. So this is what goes on. And Missouri is the same way when we were talking about Ferguson, which is what started the America's Ferguson series that Max has done and blown this entire country wide open. The evidence is beyond anything that could ever be denied. That whole area around Ferguson, Ferguson wasn't even at the top of the list. Is what people still don't understand. Ferguson was not even at the top of the list for how they were exploiting those people. And we reported on in the Department of Justice report told you that they went from a million dollars a year in revenue generated off of speeding tickets and municipal violations off them 27,000 citizens in the city of Ferguson in 2012, was it? And by 2014, when Michael Brown was murdered, they were at $3.4 million because they told the chief of police, ramp it up. We need more money, and you are the guy to get the money for us. Go get more money out of your cops. Make them write more tickets. Make them get more people in trouble. We'll get more money out of these people. They took it from a million to 3.4 million. And all up and down I-70, it's just like I-75. Raping people's pockets, man. Yeah, I mean, you know, when we tell people that this is going on and this is how modern day slavery and human trafficking works, but they just corner you into this uh, level where you can no longer afford to pay what they make extorting from you, and then you end up in their jails, and that's how they make their money on you. It's one way or another, you're going to pay. You're going to be profitable to these communities, and they prefer, although it affects everybody, they prefer not they're the ones in power not to do people like them this way. They do people like us this way. It's just a terrible thing happening, and it's a, a, a man. I can't see how anyone can see this as anything less as the top priority facing America Americans today. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I, I do want to remind our listeners we cut back on some of our stories. We only share like four stories and then we have our other segments but this is a two-hour program and um we cut back on those stories because we want to hear from you we want to hear what your thoughts are we want to hear reports from behind the enemy lines if this sort of thing is going on where you live how you're dealing with it uh, we want to hear solutions as well anybody have any solutions like one solution for these cops being fired and only going off to another state or another city within the state to uh, get another job is perhaps there needs to be, uh, you know, they're talking about background checks, right? That's in the news now uh, for gun purchases online and, and at gun show. How about background checks, a national database for background checks for cops so that you can find out easily with the click of a mouse whether or not this cop was fired somebody else for participating in it and whatever oppression of the people. And with that said, we do have a caller, uh, area code 909. Thank you uh, for uh, joining us here on New Abolitionist Radio. 
Uh, what's on your mind? Well, this is Nancy. Uh, I was talking online the other day about my diagram. Hey, Nancy, how you doing? Welcome to New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, I'm looking forward to your call. Uh, before we get into that, though, I just want to add one thing to this, that uh, recently there was a uh, – let me pull it up here. The Justice Department shut down a huge asset forfeiture program. It was going to be one of our stories, although we had to cut it down. This is not one of them. But it is very important to know that they don't just stop you and ticket you. With asset forfeiture, they were taking your property, your car, your money, your house, your dog, whatever they could get their hands on, and then selling it and keeping that money. So an important thing, an important thing to note about that was you didn't even have to be charged with a crime. For example, one one of the stories was this guy had won some money at the casino. So he won, you know, I forget how many thousands of dollars he hit it big that night at the casino. He's traveling home, gets pulled over. A cop, you know, uh, uh, sees the bag of cash and, you know, uh, auto, assumes that, you know, this is drug money or whatever excuse. But they never even charged the guy with a crime and kept his money. It also happened to a, a, a church secretary who was taking a Sunday, you know, uh, 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 um, Ties and offerings uh, to the bank. She I pulled over. Cop took the cash. Never charged these people with a crime. Now, here is the thing, though. Just because the Justice Department is, set, is shutting theirs down, that's the federal. The local police departments and state police departments still have these things operating locally and on their own, apart from the federal's uh, asset and seizure forfeiture program. Hmm. Damn. Yeah, they, as a matter of fact, the report came out last week, I believe, or no, week before last, that uh, in 2014, the police took more uh, in funds than criminals did. <laughs> the police, through asset seizure laws and uh, exercising that, took more money than the criminals did. Wow. Well, anyway, uh, we've got our guest, our guest here with us calling, Nancy. Welcome to New Abolitionist Radio. You and I were having some conversations. We've been having some conversations. Uh, just we have. Yeah, she is an abolitionist and has been following our work for quite some time uh, and has inspired me with your research and the things that you found out. And you put together a chart based on one of our recent conversations. And uh, I'd like you to, to break down what it is. I'll share it on New Abolitionist Radio so our listeners can take a look at it. But please tell us about this chart. Well, it, it it arose out of my uh, my reading. I'm an I'm a researcher, and I do a lot of research. And I, I needed to get in my mind sort of the visual order for how these things happened. Like, what happened first, and who was in the Supreme Court, and who was president during that time, and what else was going on? Because everything informs everything else. Uh, you know, you, you see periods of time where uh, either there's a liberal uh, movement where things improve a tiny bit or where there's a very uh, conservative movement where everything starts to really tighten down. And then everything follows that. You know, once you name a drug czar, then you move him over to a different department so that he has more freedom to move. And, for example, using the uh, comments the gentleman made about asset forfeiture, that all started in uh, 1970, 
and there was a case called Wickard versus Filburn, and that's on that chart. And they went under the under the RICO Act. Well, the RICO Act were you know had to do with corporatism. You know, were you were you breaking some kind of rule having to do with with businesses? Well, they said, well, that's close enough to to, to drug businesses, so we'll tie there. And Nixon was president, and so Attorney John Mitchell says, uh, you know, now we're going to look at potential criminals, which means that if you're driving a nice car or if you have more than $100 cash on your person, that you intend to do wrong with that. Well, if you look back in history and you say, well, now, wait a second, it, that, that's more like the thought police. In other words, I haven't actually done anything. There's no intent. You can't prove intent. And the, the law is based on English common law by Blackstone. And Blackstone said, you must have intent in order to prove a crime. In other words, you intended to shoot somebody or you intended to sell drugs or whatever you intended to do. So, you know, when you start tracing it back and you look at where these things came from, you know, what's related to what, like if you look at the chart, the things that are in red, all, there's some red boxes there. And all of those have to do with drugs. Well, you start out in 1913 with the Harrison Narcotics Act, and that's, you know, you go, okay, well, 1913, they, they didn't know much about science, and they were afraid of drugs. And then you see that that was pretty close on to the Volstead Act, and the Volstead Act was inspired by the religious right because they wanted people not to drink, and that lasted for 13 years, and then they got rid of that as they wiped, as they wiped out not just alcohol, but they wiped out the power of the religious right. They change presidents, and you move on down. You can see through the red items, through the 1970s, of course, through the 1980s, uh, down to present day, where you have a drug czar and you have a national drug policy, um, and you have people flying over in raids, like this guy who has a house out in Malibu. His name's Carlson. And the Parks Department has a property adjacent to Mr. Carlson, and he's a retired multimillionaire. And they say, gosh, you know, we'd really like to have his property. So they go over and they make him a bid. And they say, you know, we'd love to have your property. It's adjacent to the park. It really adds something. He says, no, thanks. My wife and I are retired, retired here. So what do they do? They fly over in a helicopter. They say they site 13 marijuana plants. Next thing you know, they've got his property. Wow. That's how the law works. So you, you look at starting in the 70s with forfeiture, going to today. Again, if, if you get more than $100 cash on you, if you're driving a nice car, you better be able to prove how you got it. This is a, an amazing chart here. I'm looking at it right now. And uh, you traced it all the way back from 1572 and then lined it up with, I guess, what you would call uh, this, uh, parallel things that were occurring in a similar fashion, right? Right. Wow. Ruby Ridge, Branch, Davidian case there, uh, the Christopher Report, Wilson versus Arkansas. So if you want to see what these things are, you have to do is use those keywords to look at what was occurring at that period in time and how it compares to the others. Uh, you know, I, I tend to say that history, uh, actually the future tends to look a lot like the past. So if you want to know oh, what's yeah. going to happen, Look at what has already happened and expect a pattern to unfold. And that's what you've shown here with this chart is these patterns unfolding. I'm looking yeah. I'm looking here at the chart, um, particularly in the nineteen sixties, 
which was the last what we call, you know, major uh, uh, freedom movement, or it's also known as the Black Liberation Movement, when the Black Panther Party uh, for self-defense, which initially mobilized against police violence in, in the black community, but then they expanded, you know, uh, um, the things that they were engaged in and the people that they were actually working with. But I'm seeing on this chart, in terms of the Omnibus Control Act, the 1969 Black Panther Raid. Could you explain that? Um, the, well, you find that there's a confluence of things that happened. If you look just to the left of that box, you'll see that there's something in gray, and it says tower shooting. And I happen to have some personal history with that. Uh, I was living in Southern California when the tower shootings at the University of Austin occurred. And what the police found when Charles Whitman went up, you know, several stories and had uh, his old equipment from having been a U.S. Marine is that he was out firepowering the police. All they had was pistols, and they could not reach him, and he was shooting at will. He killed 11 people, and I think he injured a number of others, one of whom was the daughter of one of my history professors. Um, so I, I had a link to that and, you know, knew quite a bit about it. We talked quite a bit about it. Then you look at what happens after that power shooting. You see that the police are now getting uh, military-based equipment because they want to be on par with anyone they run into. They see what the possibilities are. That's been just preceded by the Watts riot. Then you watch the rise of the Black Panther Party. And, of course, Black Panther Party then brings uh, the birth of the Mulford Act. The Mulford Act was the way that that the government controlled the weaponry possessed by Black Panther members. If you you know, it, look at these guys out here in Oregon right now. They're out there with every gun known to, to to Oregon, and they're not saying a thing to them, and they're not outlawing their weapons. But the Black Panther Party says, "Hey, you know, we're gonna we're gonna take care of ourselves." And all of a sudden, you see the Mulford Act. So you can see that link by what happened with what precedes it and what follows it. The Omnibus Control Act uh, follows that. Let me get that out for you. It's, uh, it was passed by Johnson, and what he started was something called LEA. And LEA is Law Enforcement Executives and Administrators. And they set the rules about wiretaps and prosecution cases. In other words, they're starting to build an organization of all law enforcement agencies. There's more than 17,000 law enforcement agencies across America. By the time you go through all the various parish sheriffs and, you know, highway patrol and, uh, you know, what have you, there, there's a million names for them. But there's 17,000 of them, and they have to join up in some way. Uh, they not only have, um, you know, the unions, which are building a, a one layer for them to advocate for their needs, but they now, as a matter of fact, I think I sent you this week a new group I just found just today in Florida called the Corrections Group. And what they are is a 501c3 in Florida that advocate for the needs of Florida law enforcement, just like this Leah in the Omnibus Control Act. You know, and let me just let Max know, Max, we're getting a lot of feedback off your line. 
uh, uh, when Nancy talks, and that's why you hear yourself being muted and unmuted. I'm unmuting you uh, when I'm anticipating that you want to speak. And again, we've you know talked over the past few weeks about your situation, and we're working to uh, you're working to get that. Uh, resolve. So that's why you're being muted and unmuted, bro. So I just wanted to let you let you know that. But you know, before I uh, bring Max back on, and um, let me see, do we still have Johanan on the line? Yeah, we still got Johanan. I'm looking here because we talk about um, this is modern slavery. That slavery was never abolished. Um, the Thirteenth Amendment has an exception clause that says that you know involuntary servitude and and slavery shall be abolished except for the punishment. For crime. Now, from some of my research, you know, the police, uh, the very false, I mean, the police predate the United States of America as a republic itself. There are police departments that are older than the United States government itself. And one of the reasons why uh, you saw these police departments had to do with, and from my research, had to do with also. Uh, enforcing the Fugitive Slave Act, which I see you have that on there as well. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. Um, in 1829, the first police force in New York uh, was was built, and it was a community-based policing. It was based on the fact that that was about the time when people moved from farms to cities. And once you move to cities, you do have all of the things that happen in cities. You have poverty, so you have theft, you have uh, assaults, etc. So they build this police department, but they're community-based. It's a law that requires if you're going to be a cop in an area, you have to live in that area. So these are your neighbors that you are policing. So that's a whole different kind of policing than what we're talking about today. We, we don't want to confuse those two. But by the time right. we get down to 1871, we now have the Fugitive Slave Act because we're starting to see some rebellions and uprisings, and so they've got to squash that, and now they've got this great pattern in front of them. They say, you know, we could put together a group state by state, just like the police force was in New York. What they've forgotten is that these are now strangers, and that this is about an economic, this is economic power and control. This is not about dealing with your neighbors so we can all be friends and sing kumbaya. Well, I think the listeners might be confused, or maybe I'm confused, but uh, guys, I'm going to open it up. Didn't we find uh, some semblance, or were they just the slave patrols? But it, I thought police departments started in the uh, mid-1600s. Yeah, according to our research, that's where they began at, in the 1600s. I think it was out in Boston, and then right after that it was in South Carolina. I may be mistaken. South Carolina and Boston's police were both uh, based on different functions. As a matter of fact, at one point with what they called the night watchmen, they required every citizen. Okay, I, I, I can clear it up. I can clear it up. They weren't formal police departments back in the 1600s. They were just simply known in Boston, for example, the night watch. And we also know, you know, they were also known as patty rollers and whatnot. Right. But it was the formal, oh, yeah. the formal yeah. police department started in the 1800s. Right. I believe, right, exactly. I believe that's it. But we still have to always have to add in the fact of the matter being that regardless of, of when it started inside of the time, you know, before this country it even became the United States, as long as there were slaves here and as long as the police's job 
was to enforce laws, no matter how racist, no matter how terroristic, uh, no matter how exclusionary, you know, that that was what they did. And they did that, you know, with with great fervor and with great, great emotion behind that. They believed in that and did that. So there's no doubt they passed that down. They also had just as much uh, crooked behavior going on and the extortion of the citizens and abuses and all sorts of foolishness has always been a part of what is, has uh, been the history of policing. So, yeah, they never had a moment where loyalty and morality collided. Not yeah. once have I known of where police as a whole stood up against unjust laws and tactics and said, no, yeah. I don't care yeah. who tells us to do it. We're not going to do it. Nope. So all those laws that were that were now illegal, you know, in this time, I mean, even through the prohibition, but I mean, especially for us, how the comparison continues the uh, parallel like we talk about on this program between, you know, the black codes and uh, debt peonage and, and chain gangs and Jim Crow laws and, you know, these things that we all know what it is, it's race-based. And just like now we see the Department of Justice continues to mm-hmm. come out reports in, in cities all across the country. There's dozens of reports over the years that have come across. Some cities have been, inve- uh, Cleveland was, have been investigated two times. Um, and they say every time, we found patterns and practice of racist policing, race-based policing, racial profiling, constitutional violations, constitutional violations, on and on and on. And just like in the stories we've already covered on this program, the A number one thing we always report is that nobody goes away in cuffs, nobody gets indicted, nobody goes to jail. These people just leave these jobs and go off in the night. It, and 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 I'm sorry for what I've seen of the evidence over the years that we've been doing this program that you all let me be a part of this. And this is a week to week, sometimes day to day. I mean, it's always some research going on into this. From what I have seen, the line in the sand is as is, is clear as the nose on your face. Mm-hmm. There is a racial line right down the middle of this. We even talked about like with the Annie Dukin uh, situation. Okay, you get a brown woman. And put her in prison for years behind twenty thousand cases of her uh, corrupting these these uh, lab tests. But Katie Corbett was her blonde-haired, blue-eyed assistant. Mm-hmm. Lied, lied, and said she had a chemistry degree. Lied and said she was an expert. Lied on on under oath on court cases that impacted thousands of people's lives, just like Annie Dukin did. And all she did was got a chance to leave her job. It's, it, people talk about the, are you mad about black cops that did shoot white people? They go to prison. So the look at the, is clear. Look at the, uh, the the Pennsylvania case of the kids for cash, where the corporation yeah. that was paying the judges ended up giving a fine that was a small fraction of the money they made selling children. Yes. Yes. Well, and I that, you know who it, I was reading about tonight, yeah. Mr. Porter, who had gotten tried last month, remember, for the Freddie Gray uh, murder. And now they've moved this trial out, and a judge today apparently ordered him to testify against uh, one of his fellow police officers, knowing that it would violate his his right of self-incrimination. So if he tells the truth, not only will he incriminate himself, and he has no immunity, but morally, the only way he can do the right thing is to tell the truth. So they put him in a negative double bind. There's no way he can tell the truth. He's not going to tell them anything, which means that not only will he probably get off, but the guy they're going to yeah. try next on Monday is going right. to get off too. 
Yes. They, these police swear to uphold the Constitution and to defend it. And they break that oath every day. So don't expect them to cut <laughs> the Bible and get up on a stand and do something different just because some judge asked them to. I put no faith in anything that comes out of policemen's mouth nowadays because we've seen too much proof otherwise. I do want to say, Nancy, that this is a fabulous work. I'm sure it took a lot of time and effort, and I'm going to help share it around so people can see it. You can look at it on New Abolitionist Radio right now and send her a friend request. Appreciate all the work that you've done, and thank you for calling in and sharing this information with us tonight. Nancy, did you have anything you would like to say in closing as we end this segment? Uh, no, but I'm 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 working tonight, as a matter of fact, on uh, a new timeline having to do with slavery in the United States from 1500s to date. That'll be exactly the same way. It will show all the events that impacted slavery in the United States. Oh wow, wow! Mm-hmm. Please, this is what you call doing something. <laughs> right. Doing something. Yes, indeed. Applause to you, my sister. Salute. Yes, yes, Nancy. Thank you right. for Salute. thank you for thank your contribution. Thank you for your contribution. Have a good night, Tim. You have a good night too. Good night. Uh, yeah, we're coming up on our, our next break, uh, about a minute away, and uh, you just heard uh, Nancy Shelley and uh, that chart is available at New uh, the uh, at New Abolitionist Radio on Facebook. So please take a look at it, share it around. I can't wait for the next chart to come out, man, because people need to see the history, man. This is history that's not being taught. Um, this chart that she has about um, you know the different things we were discussing, very detailed. Um, you know, and it gives you a place, a, a starting point to do your own research because we always encourage people to do their own research. Just don't take our words for it. Uh, we've been doing this for quite some time. I would call us experts, uh, researchers, uh, um, especially Max with that America is Ferguson uh, series, mm-hmm. but we also looked at each and every state constitution. We don't just get on here and give you opinions. We go and we research the facts. We present them to you for you to make up your own mind and also for you to double check the facts. So I'm looking forward to seeing this new chart uh, that is tracing, you know, slavery, the institution of slavery uh, all the way back to the 1500s on this continent, because I'm sure from there we'll be able to uncover a whole a lot of more information, you know, and, and again, as we always tell people, slavery ain't never been abolished. It's a continuation, you know, of uh, uh, the um, of one of the most um, solid pillars of economic activity in on this continent before this was even a country. You look at the found the so-called founding fathers, slaveholders, enslavers. It is one of the things that I did when I was looking at the chart was in order to put a face on the activities I was. Uh, picturing what person was president during those periods of time. So I can have a face to, to point at and say, you were the one at that point doing this to us. Right. Hmm. Oh, man. And well, now the thing I see we got to do, I know we got to take a break, but I, I just uh, continue to see we got to find a way, like with this charts and with, uh, what Nancy was talking about, what she's doing. I mean, those are great. I mean, the visuals, being able to keep this stuff in front of people, and I, I don't know. I don't. We somehow we've got to be able to compel people to care about this, like to the point of 
believing that this is at the root of what's causing so many other problems. I just pray for me, y'all, because I, I, I've been trying to figure it out. How are we going to get people to care? Dude, we're doing it. Nancy's one of the people. I mean, she's been listening to me for uh, several years now. A lot, a lot of Everybody around me better know what I'm talking about. That's how I live. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And yeah. each of us do that. And that circle keeps multiplying with every person that changes and goes, you know what? These dudes are right. This woman is right. How have I been so blind all along? And then they, they have this paradigm shift that goes on. And it's happening, dude. Just by being who you are and doing what you're doing, you are changing the world. Right. And I would, before we take take our break, just say, you know, uh, every week we're adding new abolitionists to our group. Move to abolish 21st century slavery, which is up to 2,659 members. And And this ain't a group where... You know, we just allow anybody to come in and, and say whatever they want and post whatever they want. We have blocked over 145 people in this. It was up to 187 earlier today because I went in and blocked some new ones and then looked over. I reviewed some of the blocked ones. It was 187 this morning. Oh, okay. <laughs> so we are, yeah. we are, our, the message is spreading, uh, um, not just us. But our members of the group, this message is spreading, man, the message of abolitionism. And again, I want to thank, you know, Gorgeous Greg, Double A tried to join in, Johanna tried to join in. Uh, but we did have a new guy join in when we had that abolitionist meeting Saturday night where people could join in with their video cameras and we could talk to each other and get reports and explain to other people who had questions, who just happened to come across it and was, you know, had questions and, 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 you know, we were able to dispute some of the things or refute some of the things that they were saying. So, you know, shout out to all the abolitionists, man. On the other side of the commercial, when we come back, another example is going to be Brother Muhaddin Dibaha, uh, who is a slavery abolitionist and representing the new abolitionist who was front and center at the uh, Slater protest just yesterday. You'll see the picture of him uh, on the Watch.com news front page. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio. We'll be right back after these messages. You are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network for live programming schedules. Visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. Peace. Welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. That was quick. <laughs> um, let me pull up the story here. As you know, Muhaddin Dibaha is a slavery abolitionist. He set up uh, a couple of uh, workshops that him and I have worked with. Work with the unions as well, discussing with them the issues of modern. And he is a member of Black Lives Matter, too. Right. He's one of the leading members of Charleston Black Lives Matter and uh, was also a participant in the uh, America After Ferguson uh, uh, event that went on with the uh, Public Service Channel, I think, last last year. In any case, uh, he's, as always, bringing the message of abolition to these events. So people understand that it's a whole lot more than just want to fire policemen, a whole lot more than just want to hold a policeman accountable. He's pointing out the patterns and practices of slavery to these people. So North Charleston, South Carolina, WCIV, calling former North Charleston police officer Michael Slater a threat to the community. Leaders of four groups called on solicitor Scarlett Wilson to appeal his bail and demanded police chief A. Driggers be fired. Members from Black Lives Matter, the National Action Network, the NAACP, 
and the coalition gathered gathered outside Charleston County Detention Center Tuesday morning, less than a day after Slager was released on a $500,000 surety bond. Slager spent the last eight months in an isolated cell at the North Charleston Holding Facility. Slager was charged with <laughs> murder at the cell phone video service of him shooting Walter Scott in the back during a traffic stop. Uh, stop. Amid cries of we want Slager back in jail, from a group of protesters, National Action Network leaders said they would not stop until there was justice for Scott. Walter Scott was not allowed to come home for Christmas, said Elder James Johnson, adding that Scott never had a chance to get bombed before he was killed. You know, I can't even read any more of this. I just want to say this. We saw the video. We saw what happened, and the only reason the video exists again was because of a citizen right without his notice if he right. had if that had not happened this man would have lied would have killed this man in cold blood walter scott and walked away scott free okay but instead now his ass is going to spend the next 11 months at home with his wife and kids while walter scott is dead and we saw him do it in cold blood we saw him try to manipulate evidence with an accomplice to make it look like uh, he has been attacked by Walter Scott, but the video clearly showed him being shot eight freaking times in the back while he was running away. This man shouldn't be allowed to be out. He's a security risk, first of all, because you see on video that he will lie, even in the most extreme circumstances. And let's talk about the bond. He got out on $50,000 for a $500,000 surety bond. The young brother, 18-year-old brother who broke a police window in Baltimore had the same exact bond. Can you mean to tell me that killing Walter Scott and the cold blood is the equivalent of breaking a police window? Is that how we are looking at this now? This whole thing stinks from the top to the bottom. South Carolina, I am ashamed to be living in the midst of you right now. Yeah, man. I, I'm always amazed at how for all the um, all the hype behind you know these heroes and the police are our heroes, and they, they deserve to go home to their families. They're out here fighting for, I mean, all the rhetoric, man, that I don't even want to, I don't even want to say that crap out my own mouth. But when I hear all of this, what I compare that to, though, is situations like this. When you know good and damn well you shot a man that was running away from you eight times in his back, and all across this country, thousands of cases that are very similar where these heroes pulled out a gun. Okay, so you rolled up on somebody. You had the power of the law behind you. You had a gun, a badge, a taser, a baton, a shotgun in the car, a canine unit, a partner sitting up with you, 10 other cops on their way to the scene, the entire police force, the police union, the damn president. You, you got everything imaginable on your side, and you're against one broke-ass person that can't even make bail on a on a fifty dollar charge, you give them if you can if you don't kill them and and take them to jail. You such a damn hero, and then you go stand in court and plead not guilty. Uh, I'll call a cop a hero when one of these sons when one of these dudes goes in here and and goes in there and says I'm guilty. I, I, yes, I, I did. I well, <clears throat> I got a story that um reveals just a sliver of hope that's related to this and uh, what was happening to him while he was in jail. Of course, they had him in protective custody and in a uh, solitary, you know, cell by himself. Right. But, but, but before I get to that Ugh. story, let me say this. 
Dylan Roof, terrorist, white supremacist terrorist, $1 million bail. I think he's still in prison. I mean, still in jail, right? Mm-hmm. They ain't even had his trial yet. Uh, what's up with that? But I view what Slager did as more egregious than what Dylan Roof did. Because he did it in uniform as a representative of the state. There you go. You do. We on the same page, Max. This is mm-hmm. worse than when uh, when uh, so-called common criminals out there, you know, are robbing people and killing people, you know, uh, through the acts of their during the course of their crimes. This is worse. All right. This is worse than Dylan Roof going into a church, praying with people, sitting through Bible study on a Wednesday night, and then at the conclusion of Bible study, pulling out a gun and shooting them all. What Michael Slager did is more egregious than that because he took an oath, as y'all talked about all these cops, take an oath to uphold the Constitution, to, to even though the Supreme Court said their job is not to protect and serve the public, their job is to enforce laws. But even then, they are supposed to be enforcing laws, but they're breaking laws, in addition to violating the Constitution, and also violating the the most sacred part of the preamble of the uh, of the uh, of the Constitution, which says that we all have have you know the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now I will add mm-hmm. on to that: as long as we're not harming anybody else in the process, we're not you know harming intruding upon somebody else's life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. So I see this man, he shouldn't even be out. He shouldn't even be out. His bond should be two million. If Dylan's roof bond was one million, his bond should be two million. Because he did this under the color of the law. With a badge well, first on. First of all, when it comes to bail, bail should be based on your income and not just any general number. Because two million uh, to him, I mean, with these white supremacists out there supporting him, he can raise how much did that other cop raise? Well, well, let, how about dollars? how about no bail? That would be better. I prefer that would be perfect. No bail. Being in the street. No uh, bail, whatsoever. He is a flight risk. Hmm. Now, so this they is what we got. Pay cops to watch him now for the next eleven months. Is that what we got? Oh, do? wait a minute. That that story uh, that you know you you chose says that he's not even on the ankle bracelet. Nope. No ankle bracelet. Damn. This is this is terrible, man. This is the good old boy club looking out for the good old boys. Is what it is. It's really exercising their authority in such a way that the corruption is, is something that demands immediate justice somehow. That demands an immediate reaction from the people and by the people against South Carolina or and particularly Charleston, South Carolina's police department. Now. This is a story, this is an old story. It came out, but it's my first time seeing it. I was trying to find some audio clip, clips related to the story about, you know, the groups coming together. Um, you know, all, and good to see all those groups coming together. NAACP, Black Lives Matter, National Action Network, even though, you know, we, we don't think that, we think that y'all should be, some of you should be doing more. And 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 some of you, you know, we know y'all young and y'all learning on the job. But it was good to see all of y'all come together 
and on a common thread and saying this person is a danger to society and, and, and to our community. But here, here's a story that I found while I was trying to find those audio clips from the Daily Mail, which is a, a United Kingdom British-based uh, website. And it was published in April. This is my first time seeing it. This says that oh, there was one prisoner in there. Let me see if I can find his quote. He said, I'm just going to tell y'all what he said. And I'm going to share this to New Abolitionist Radio. He said that there were a lot of prisoners angry and that Slager had to watch his back. Not, it wasn't just the black prisoners angry at him or the jail you know, people in jail. But the white ones wanted to get them too. All right. Then it also said that there is some kind of split in the police department. That might have came from a, a different story, the one you shared, Max. But I read that the black uh, police officers are angry because the white police officers have Slager's back. And they said that it's still corrupt in there and ain't nothing changed. And, and, and so they've been calling the new police chief. I think it was the article Max shared, the original article we're sharing with you now. It's in that article where it was saying that they're calling for that police chief to be fired or, or to be removed. And they were calling people to protest and swearing in because he ain't doing nothing. I don't know if he's been reelected or rehired. I don't know what the deal is. But there seems to be a split in the police department, according to that article, of the black cops versus the white cops. Now, uh, again, I don't believe in black versus white. I believe in justice versus injustice, okay? Now, but we saw in that video, that same video of Slager murdering, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, what's his name? What's the victim name again? Walter Scott. Walter, Walter Scott. Scott. Walter Scott. We saw the black cop who witnessed the entire thing file a false police report was going to help Slager get away yep. with it. All right. So perhaps these black cops they're talking about are not that one because he was going to help Slager get away with it by filing Shout a false report. Yeah. Shout out to our brother, uh, Faden Santana, the young brother that uh, actually did the video of the of the killing and like you said right. if he hadn't had that and put that out there that that would have been yeah. swept under the rug. And, and it's a good thing it's, it's always the average citizen making that difference. And it's a good mm -hmm. thing he didn't turn it over to the police department because he was going to turn yeah. it over to them and he got scared and left and then it ended up turning it over to the attorneys of the Slager uh, excuse me uh, Walter Scott's family. So right you don't want, so yeah, you don't want to take it to, if you're going to take it to the police, you better put it online first. So you have a copy. Get the, uh, get the ACLU um, app. You can download that ACLU app to your phone. And as soon as you see something, just tape it. As soon yeah, as you I don't really trust off, them, them automatically. I don't even trust huh? them, though. I don't trust them, man. Because we didn't have they yeah, brought you, any RICO charges. You may be right there, but you got to start somewhere. <laughs> again, again, everything we keep showing you is pointing towards this conspiracy, state at the state, county at the county, uh, all across America. And every time we hear these stories, there's always there's always a, a group of people involved in this conspiracy who just simply walk away. 
would, would like nothing ever happened. Like they weren't right. participants in any of this. Right. And you the know? black and cop. They support the criminals. And the black cop who filed the false police report. Again, what did you say, Max? All throughout these stories, we can show you the corruption and the conspiracies to cover up. Where's his charges at? I thought it was a crime to file a false police report. Well, hell, they found it, uh, guards in, uh, right in, uh, Attica last year, not guilty of any kind of charges because they were, you remember that case? The three guards that beat that brother to damn near to death. Try to kill his body in solitary. What's that? Lamar, uh, Lamar Hill, Lamar Hill, I believe his name is, said recently that we can't expect to get justice from this system of law because oh. the system is itself an artifact of slavery, of white supremacy. Yeah. Right, right. But I was, ha I, you know, I don't know about y'all, but I was pleased to read that story that the prisoners in the jail that Michael Slager was in, mm -hmm. that they set aside whatever differences that they had, and they was like, you know, we're going to get this cold-blooded killer. So, and well, then... He's, he's out now. Ain't nobody going to get him but his wife and kids now. But let, check this out, though. He's probably getting laid or drunk as we speak. Now, we say... <clears throat> excuse me. Excuse me. Hello? Um, yeah, I'm here. What I was going to say is, we have from time to time highlighted, quote unquote, good cops who blew the whistle only to be targeted by the other cops and, and talk, called rats and snitches and we're going to set you up to get you killed. But there, it's not it's a whole cold. lot of those. It's, it's not, we want to talk about Oregon. You know, you had the Oregon. Five ain't enough, Scotty. What? Five ain't enough, y'all. What? Say five ain't enough. <laughs> five ain't gonna cut it. Yeah, but but they, you know, but then we had the Oregon cop. We started off talking about Oregon. The Oregon cop who witnessed the police chief using derogatory racist language towards this black female, this black woman that he, you know, calling her a monkey and making monkey sounds. And when he turned him in, which ultimately led to that police chief's resignation, the whole damn town turned on him, on the cop and the cop's family. Okay, they were gonna get that cop. They ran his wife off the road. All right, and and, and but here here's the thing though. You know, here's the thing. Now we're seeing that there's some internal discord at this North Charleston Police Department with the black cops versus the white cops who are the supporters of Slager in there. This is what we need to see more of. Okay, you want to be a hero? Then you need to police the police, the criminals that's in you know. Is in your ranks. You ain't got no business with that job. Quit. Seriously. Exactly. Quit. Walk out. Exactly. And mass. Every single one of you who are people of color and whose history traces to the diaspora, walk the hell out, throw the badge in their faces, and tell them to go screw themselves. Hire some white boys to do it because we ain't going to do it no more. I'll tell you what you can do. Commandeer the weapons cache. On your way out the door, frag your commanding officer and come over to the side of the people. How about that? How about, that would be a hero. How, that would be a hero cop. Bring the weapons to the people. Take out some of the leadership on your way out the door. 
How about arresting them on the spot when you witnessed them doing the crime? Well, hell, I wish that would go somewhere. I wish that would lead to something. But, but that leads to our next story, because even if they did arrest them, the good old boys' system is so well put together that somebody in that uh, well, is going to get them out and their ass is going to get hurt. Max, before you move to that next story, again, let me say this to all the cops out there. Don't talk to me about no doggone constitution and freedom and liberty and like, you know, you're out here protecting society. You know, why don't you stop enforcing unconstitutional laws like the drug laws? Where's the constitutional prohibition for drugs? Where is that? Where? Show me. I don't see it. Hmm. All of these laws, just because something's <laughs> right. a, just cause something's a law, don't make it right, you know. And then you right. know, again, the executive action that President Obama took on gun control, closing the so-called loopholes of the online gun buying and selling, and the and the gun show trade, the trade show buying and selling, and and, and so that showed me I'm you know I'm not concerned too much about that he ain't taking nobody's guns and he ain't banning nobody's gun he just directed the executive branch the ATF to start licensing these people making it federal law cuz some states do do background checks for gun show purchases and online purchases but it's not all the states so he just informed me what I'm the way I'm viewing this is he's calling for stricter enforcement of the uh, Brady Handgun Crime Control Act or or whatever. He's expanding uh, the ATF, directing them to start, you know, requiring these people to have a license to sell these guns online and at, at trade shows. So he has that power. But guess what else power he has? He has the power. To tell the D to actually abolish the DEA, he could fire every last single one of them. Right now, you're talking about something, Scotty Reed. Now that's that's the difference of what you talk about when you know what the real problem is, and that's why, like I said, five good cops ain't gonna do it. Right, a mouthpiece like a like a like a, a double speaker like a Mark Lamont Hill ain't gonna do it. Right. These people that are that are playing the the cerebrus dog that that protects you're gonna guard the gate on one end, you're gonna keep the people from leaving on the other end. You got a serpent mm-hmm. tail. I mean, everything about you is protecting the lie. Yeah, that's what we see. That's what I'm talking about. That's what we have to focus hey, hey, on. Is you, hey, you got to blow that lie out. One more thing. How about an executive order? dissolving the corporation owned by the run by the executive branch called Unicor. Hmm. Shut it down. We got to bring it on it. Shut them down. Shut them yeah. down. Yeah. <laughs> you know, shut them down. Wouldn't that be something if it, he did that? Wouldn't that be amazing? It, it may be. And he uh, has the power uh, to uh, do uh, that. Why isn't he doing that? Be. Y'all need to go on Twitter and at Barack Obama or at POTUS and ask him where's the executive order to end Unicor, to dissolve Unicor, a, fed, a corporation owned by the Corporation USA Inc. that on their website lists all these services and products that are, are made or provided by prisoners, prison slave labor, and marketing it to other corporations. Where's the executive action on that? Where the executive, you want to talk about some gun violence? Where is the executive ans- uh, uh, action on 
uh, uh, requiring these police departments that's getting federal block grants, that's coming from the executive branch, that if you don't report the homicides that you're committing, that you will not get those block grants. So, again, I'll close it with that, man. Well, I know maybe some may frown at me for quoting my own poetry, but remember, every genocide is considered legal by the people doing the killing, enslaving, mm -hmm. the robbing, and the raping. Okay? Yep. Every genocide was considered illegal. What Hitler did was considered legal. What Mao did was considered legal. What anybody did was always considered legal. Now, I want to try to squeeze this last story in here before we get into our Ohio is Ferguson report after the next break. And the story just goes to show the same narrative over and over again. As a matter of fact, it starts out with the very first line from the Daily Mail, which uh, Scotty was quoting earlier. A top city of Chicago lawyer has stepped down after a federal judge accused him of hiding evidence in the fatal police shooting of an innocent black man. Right there, in the very beginning. He wasn't arrested, wasn't charged. He simply stepped down, even though he was an accomplice to conspire to allow a murderer or murderers to get away. Jordan Marsh, who worked for the city since 1997, intentionally concealed information about events that led to the death of Darius Penix in 2011. Officers Raul Mosquito and Delgado uh, Sierra said they were listening to the police radio and heard the description of a car connected to a shooting. Then they claimed they spotted Penix's car, thought it was the same one, and when he refused orders to stop, they opened fire. However, it later emerged that the pair were not listening to the radio and did not hear the description of a shooting or a car. Crucial details that lawyer Jordan Marsh was aware of and left out. This has been recently revealed by a judge. Now you got this lawyer who's part of the damn conspiracy, but there's no, hey, you know what? We need to prosecute this guy. They're allowing him to simply step down. Where's he going to be at next week? In Oregon as a lawyer? <laughs> this is a criminal. This is a criminal. We do have a call. We're going to uh, forego the last break. Because uh, we got, what, two more, three more segments of uh, uh, the Americanist yeah. Ferguson. We got the abolitionist profile. We also got the writer of the Underground Railroad. And, yeah, by and the I want to make sure I play that video of uh, Brother George tonight. As, uh, our right. Brother that's the writer of the Underground Brother. Railroad, right? Right. Yeah, I got it. I yeah. got it. I'll play it. Um, but um, right. we do got, I want to say this. Um, uh, Lotus Place will not be on air tonight. Uh, Sister Black Rose, the host of that program, had a death in the family. Um, she was unable to find a sit-in, so they will not be on air tonight. Lotus Place Radio will not be on air tonight, but please keep uh, Sister Black Rose and her family in your thoughts and prayers mm -hmm. as we send our condolences uh, at the loss of her uh, family member because she is a member of the Black Talk Radio Network family. So. What happens to one happens mm -hmm. to us all. We do have a caller. Uh, let's go ahead and take uh, area code 240. Thank you for hanging in there patiently. Uh, go ahead with your question or comment. Area code 240. 240-595. Did you have a question or comment? Hey, what's going on, Scotty? Greetings. Who are we speaking with? 
Christian, Christian in Maryland. Hey, what's going on, Christian? Hey, Welcome hey, to New Abolitionist Radio, brother. Great show as usual. What's on your mind thanks, tonight? Thanks. I'm surprised you guys didn't mention anything about, like you always say, Scotty, the black proxy racist judge that actually let uh, Michael Slager post bail. I didn't know he was one. I didn't know. <laughs> wow. Got a lot of those these days, man. And, and I feel oh, so I sorry you guys for that. No, I didn't, I didn't know that either. Oh, my God. I, I, I was trying to find the article because I saw it on Facebook. And for some reason, I don't remember which group that I saw it on to share it on, on you guys' page. But if I find it, I'll, I'll post it up. Wow! Wow! And I've been saying that for the past few days. I've been I've been talking to people about that. That you know, race is no barrier. Whatever race you claim is no barrier to you practicing white supremacy. You right. Know, we've got a lot of people whose minds are broken. They might as well be a white person. They are so much into white supremacy. No, no, let's not say they ought to be a white person. Let's say they they ought to be a white racist. They might as well be one. They are so white. No, a white racist. A white racist. There's a difference between a white person and a white racist. I'm talking about supremacy, white supremacy. Yeah, They have white supremacist ideology. Yeah, they might as well be. David Clark. Yeah. Geraldo Rivera. That's why I keep saying like Neely Fuller. I love that clip. It's not black versus white. It ain't, you know, taking pride in being black and you don't believe in practicing justice, you know. And and so it's a justice versus injustice thing. That's how complicated white supremacy, the system, has be has become. And they know exactly what they're doing. This is part of what Mr. Needy Fuller calls the maximum confusion. Oh, it can't be racism because you got a black judge letting the white killer cop out on bail who shouldn't mm-hmm. be out on bail. They do that in the news media all the time. It don't matter what a cop or somebody will do, no matter how racist it is, they have got a Rolodex full of black and brown people that they can call in to defend them. And then they'll sit back with their white supremacy racist asses and watch these proxies do and say things that had they done it or said it, the whole country would be in an uproar. But since they got somebody of color to do it, like the judge you just mentioned, everything is okay. Look, a black guy get it. See, it's okay. The judge in the uh, uh, Ayanna Jones uh, murder, same way, black black female, black woman. Yep. Sit up here and let him off. The Dr. Derek Bell said uh, back in the day, I still remember that quote where he was just saying, you know, what's the what is what difference is it going to make, you know, in the future of America? when it becomes mainly minority races, you know, the, they always talk about, you know, the rise of uh, Latino community and, you know, blacks start to break out of the 13 to 14% range. We've been held at forever, uh, seeing more and more mixed races and all these people coming in and whatever, whatever. He's just like, what is, what is the point of all that though, of having all these minority races rising up? If people who are people of color are breaking their backs, trying to be white, <laughs> I mean, it's or not going to make any difference if their minds are the same as the white supremacists that they're trying to integrate and assimilate with. Right. For them butter biscuits, man. Them butter, don't you know how good them butter biscuits is, man? Especially man. the kind yeah. with the honey on top. Man. You know, there's a couple of different reasons why people do stuff like that. Uh, it isn't always where they put this you know, their own personal interests ahead of everybody else, although that does happen quite often. Sometimes it's just because they are so brainwashed 
they don't know anything else. I mean, they're completely convinced in what they're saying, that it's true, and these are the facts. And I would have pointed at Sheriff Clark, for instance. Like, he completely believes what he's saying, even though it's illogical and uh, based on fallacies and misinformation. No, I, I, I think he know he's full of, you know what? He knows it, man. <laughs> he just don't care. You know, what is it, pathological liars where they believe the lies that they tell them? Maybe we can put him in that category as a pathological liar when he actually believes his lies. But I think he knows exactly, knows exactly what he's doing, man. He's just pandering well, to a certain base. Christian, we appreciate you bringing that information to our attention. We'll look into it more, man. Did you, did you have, uh, Christian, did you have any other comments before we move to the next segment? I'm going to post it right now on that group. All right. Thank perfect, you, Chris. Right, good, on, good. right on. Another reason for me to be ashamed of South Carolina today. Okay. <laughs> well, what we're going to do next is go into our Ferguson is America series. We're skipping the break on this one. Uh, we do this every week, as he, uh, the brothers have been saying. And today Max, your audio's audio. low again. Oh, I'm sorry. Can you hear me better now? Yes, sir. Yep. yep. Okay. So uh, as the buzzers are saying, we do the America Ferguson series, and today we dropped the bomb on Ohio, particularly uh, considering what recently occurred with the Tamir Rice case, where, you know, again, the killer of a child who shot a child in less, people say it was less than two seconds, it was actually less than one second, 0.875 seconds, shot a child in a playground to death more than once, twice, I believe, he shot the child. And then held his little sister down in the playground while her brother bled to death. This man just walked away from Scott Free. Again, uh, nothing happened to him. He was completely justified according to his cohort. Well, today we're going to talk about that state, the state of Ohio, and show you that Ohio is Ferguson. So let me just get right into it. Oh, by the way, you can find this information both at New Abolitionist Radio's Facebook page and the Move to Abolish 21st Century Slavery and Human Trafficking page. With the supporting links, I highly suggest you check out the supporting links. Most of them will blow your mind, like the one where 44 policemen were indicted, where an entire police force was uh, disbanded, where just on and on and on. In any case, Ohio is murdered. People, quick facts. Population as of 2014 is 11,549,163. A lot of people. Of that, white alone are 83%. Black or African American is 12.6%. American Indian and Alaska Native is 0.3%. Hispanic or Latino is 3.5%. Business quick facts. The total number of firms as of 2007 was 897,000 plus. Of those, black-owned firms were 5.8%. So that's pretty good. That's like 50% of the population owns businesses. American Indians and Alaska Natives own 0.3%. Hispanics own 1.1%. Women own 27.7%. Women own businesses all across America in huge numbers. And that in itself is something worth investigating. Facts and figures. The ODRC cost. The annual budget is $1.56 billion. That's a B, dollar. $1.56 billion every year. The average annual cost per inmate is 22836 
ODRC staff and population, total department active personnel is 11,745. Total incarcerated under ODRC jurisdiction is 50,350. Total number of institutions, 28. Average stay in prison, 2.03 years. Average age, 36.92 years old. Parole. Officers, 387. Community supervised population, 33,261. Now you add that 33,261 to the 5350, okay? So now we're up to 80-some-odd thousand people who are involved in the system so far. The jail system. Ohio has 88 counties. According to the latest jail census taken in 2006, there are 104 jail facilities and 20,196 inmates. Now we're up over 100,000 people. The Ohio Department of Rehabilitation and Corrections Bureau of Adult Detention is responsible for inspecting jails for standards compliance. The prison system. As of December 31st, 2013, the Ohio prison population was 51,729. At the end of fiscal year 2014, the Ohio Department of Rehabilitation and Correction employed almost 12,000 people. The agency's 014 budget was 1.56 billion. Community Correction System. The Ohio Adult Parole Authority Penal Service Section supervised 33,683 probationers and parolees in November of 2014. The crime rate in Ohio is about 5% higher than the national average rate. Property crimes account for 91% of the crime rate in Ohio, which is about 9% higher than the national rate. The remaining 9% are violent crimes and are about 18% lower than other states. Ohio has a rate about 13% higher than the national average of incarceration in prison adults per 100,000. So they're doing better than just about any other state by 13%. Ohio, as far as incarcerated people, that is, Ohio has a rate about 89% higher than the national average number of probationers per 100,000 people. They are making a probation killing in Ohio. Probation is a huge chunk of their DOT budget. Ohio has a rate about 30% lower than the national average number of parolees per 100,000 people. Taxpayers in Ohio paid about 20% lower than the other states per inmate in 2012. In 2012, the price for one inmate was 25,814 versus the national average of nearly 33,000. So they were doing it on the cheap. According to the Justice Policy Report, Ohio spends $202,000 per year per juvenile to incarcerate them for one year's time. Ohio's prisons are at, presently at 132% capacity. Rate of incarceration per 100,000 population. Whites, 344. Blacks, now you know I'm going to say it's in the thousands because what state have we run across that it wasn't in the thousands? Blacks, 2,196. Hispanics, 613. So 12.6% of the population is incarcerated at a rate of 6.4 times higher than their white counterparts who make up over 83% of the total population. There are some things of note, and then I will close it out. Of note, 3% of a single Ohio County census block group comprises 20% of the state prison population. 
So we can literally point to your hunting ground and say, those are the people you're getting 20% of your prison population from right there in that little uh, single Ohio County census block. Ohio is 83% white populated, but every person killed by police since 2012 has been black. It's a dubious distinction at best. Ohio became the first and only state to sell a prison to a private company. The short documentary, Prison for Profit, produced by the ACLU of Ohio, examines the first 18 months after Corrections Corporation of America purchased the Lake Erie Correctional Institution, LAECI, in 2011 from the state of Ohio. The film chronicles the disturbing and oft-times dangerous set of events that unfolded in the aftermath aftermath of that fear. So check out Prisoners for Profit. A recent Google search data study revealed that Ohio is among the most racist states in America. And also the inmate hmm. population in Ohio already crowded prison system is projected to reach a record 51,601 by June 30th, more than 4,100 higher than what state officials predicted in 2012. Now, we're looking at that number in hindsight, actually, and it occurred even higher than that. And by 2019, they predicted back then, the population is expected to climb even higher to 54,000 inmates, or 139% above what the prison system was designed to accommodate. In the last 25 years, Ohio's prison population has more than doubled, jumping from 25,000 in 1988 to over 50,000 as of last month, according to this. According to the Ohio Department of Rehabilitation and Correction. Finally, every person killed, as I said earlier, by police for the last four years has been black. Ohio is first. Hmm. Great job as always, Max. And when you said that about every black person that's been killed by police, I mean, every person killed by police is black. I remember, do y'all remember, this went viral. Uh, I don't know if that white man, old white man, was. Uh, he looked like he might have been in his 50s or whatnot, was walking around with a rifle, menacing people, and everybody yeah, was calling. Y'all remember Walked that? To, yeah, patted him on the back, talked him down. We love you, buddy. Took him to the police mm -hmm. station, sent him home, gave him his gun back a few hours later, told him it was going to be okay. And another thing in that story, it was a black woman who was one of the first 911 dials, and she drove past him on her way to work. She was like, I thought this fool was going to shoot and kill me. This man is out in the middle of the street with an automatic rifle pointed at cars as it drives by. Oh, ma'am, it'll be fine. We've got officers on the way. Complete opposite of what you've heard in the audio for the John Crawford case, the Jameer Rice case, when you had white males calling reporting on some black person with a gun. The police send it in the SWAT team, bring in the tank. We'll be right there. We're coming in guns blazing. Well, as uh, Scotty said earlier, they've been, as you said, they've been investigated twice by the feds, and it's already been determined that they're using unconstitutional uh, violations of people's rights and abuse and uh, violence. And all of this stuff has already been determined. And remember, this is the place where a police jumped up on a, a couple's car and unloaded his freaking gun into their faces several times. And mm. then walked away like nothing ever happened. He got off with it. Talking about they couldn't determine who actually fired the shot to kill these people. Just because you were standing on the hood of the car don't mean you the guy to actually kill them. You could have missed. 
Now, I mean, it should be illegal to shoot gun three times. Yeah. And, and 137 shots, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Melissa right. and um, I forget the Tim. Tim. Timothy. Yeah. Timothy Russell. Right, right. Yeah. So the supporting links that go with the research I just gave you is even more mind-blowing than the research itself. It shows you what they're doing and how they're doing it beyond the shadow of a doubt. And let me Ohio say this. Let me say this to the respectability politics people out there. You know, again, as we started this report, Ferguson is America based off of the Justice Department's own investigation that even documented violations of federal laws, criminal codes and whatnot. Not a single arrest, not a single prosecution. How many cities are under, what, what do they call that? They come into a, a agreement and they have a federal right. monitor and never mm-hmm. anybody going to jail, never mm-hmm. anybody being prosecuted and whatnot. So, I mean, what good is the federal government doing people? They all they do is investigate and say, "Oh yeah, we found this, we found that, and uh, we're working to put some reforms in place." Like Max and 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 we always say, "You can't reform slavery. You have to abolish." You know I can't take credit for that. That was Johanna that originally came that was up Johanna. with that, and I okay. just latched onto it because it is absolutely true. Right. Cannot reform slavery. You just can't. It's a freaking crime against humanity. How are you gonna reform a crime against humanity? Let's give you a gentler, kinder gen- genocide. You know, we could do like Hitler did and try to figure out whether it's better with gas or poison. I mean, so what's the point of even requesting a Department of Injustice investigation? What's the point? What, there's never any prosecutions and whatnot. I mean, it goes back to, you know, all these families getting paid off and whatnot, and, and, and you know, uh, the Laquan McDonald case was especially egregious because that child wasn't even in that woman who gave birth to him's custody. She, he, he grew up in the foster system and in different homes, but she takes some hush money to be quiet. You know what I'm saying? And, and, and so, but all of these billions of dollars that's being paid out for wrongful death lawsuits, well, that still ain't stopping it. Nope. And you might ask the question. You might ask the question. Well, does does anybody ever get charged? Does anything ever happen to them? Our, our next segment, which is our uh, writer of the twenty first century underground railroad, can answer that question. Hmm. Let me pull it up we for, you, a, for you, Max. A, a few minutes left. Uh, uh, actually, let me do this quick reading of who he is and what he is, and then we can you can play it right after that. Okay, a short one. This week's rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad is George Junius Stinney Jr. Seventy years after South Carolina executed a 14-year-old boy so small, he sat on a book in the electric chair. Sat on a book in the electric chair. A circuit court judge threw out his murder conviction on Wednesday morning, uh, December of 2014. Judge Carmen Mullins vacated the decision against George Stinney Jr., a black teen who was convicted of beating two young girls, two young white girls, to death in the small town of Alcala in 1944. Civil rights advocates spent years trying to get the case reopened, arguing that Stinney's confession was coerced. At the time of his arrest, Stinney weighed just 95 pounds. Officials said Stinney had admitted beating the girls, 11 and 8 years old, with a railroad spike. In 2009, affidavit, Stinney's sister said she had been with him on that day of the murders, and he could not have committed them. 
So today, a writer of the 21st Century Underground Railroad remembers George Finney Jr. with this poem. You're listening to Ill Poet Society. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. On March 23, 1944, in Alkaloo, South Carolina, these two white girls was riding bikes by the tracks that separate the whites and blacks. They was looking for Maypop flowers, but within hours they came up missing. Wishing that I had never told the sheriff that I had seen them, the white girls' bodies turned up the next day in a ditch not too far from where I stay. I was even part of the search to find them, but I found myself being blamed for the murder of Betty June Binnaker and Mary Emma Thames, ages 11 and 8. I began to panic as the white folks' rage raced at a pace too swift for me to even contemplate getting someplace safe. And before I could even count to five, I heard somebody say the nigger boy was the last one to see him alive. I wanted to run, but my feet couldn't move. So I couldn't run, and there was no point at this point because I was quickly surrounded by a white mob with guns. I resigned myself to the fact that I was going to be lynched that very instant, but in that same instant, the sheriff grabbed me and took me to jail. My name is George Junior Stinney Jr., and I'm being arrested for the killing of Betty June Binnaker and Mary Emma Thames, ages 11 and 8. The mob followed us all the way to the jail. Meanwhile, I'm crying for my life and wanted to see my mother, because I wasn't guilty of nothing but being in the wrong place at the wrong time while being the wrong color. Small for my age, I was slightly built. But the interrogation proceedings began with a bunch of questions centered around the presumption of my guilt. You see, the good old boy reasoning wouldn't allow them to realize that at 5'1", 95 pounds, there was no way I could wrestle both girls to the ground, somehow manage to crush the skull of one while simultaneously subduing the other, and transporting both bodies away from the scene in broad daylight without being seen. But the resolve of the sheriff could not be understated because he decided he was leaving that room with a confession even if he had to fabricate it. He offered me ice cream and said that I could go home and he'd forget it if I just admit that I did it. Now after hours of questioning with fear, exhaustion, and the naivete of my age combining to compromise my judgment, I admitted being the perpetrator of the incident and in that very instant relinquished my innocence. The sheriff left the room and I heard him say he just confessed that he was after sex. The little nigger boy just put the noose around his own neck. Best bet we get him to Charleston and out of sight. The lynch mob won't let the nigger survive the night. My name is George Junior Stinney Jr., and I'm being charged with the killing of Betty June Binnaker and Mary Emma Thames, ages 11 and 8. The next morning, I was sitting in my cell, and I heard an officer tell another that my father had lost his job, and he and my family had left town the previous night in fear of their lives. I hadn't signed anything, and no one talked to me about an attorney, but the jury selection began at 10, ended around 12 for the trial itself to start at 2.30. I couldn't do no bargaining, and I wasn't in a position to, and that's probably how my defense attorney ended up being the county tax commissioner. Now, blacks were not allowed in the courtroom, so you know they were none on the jury. Quick, fast, and in a hurry with no witnesses, transcripts, written confession, or evidence. After 10 minutes, I was sentenced to death with no hesitance. My name is George Junior Stinney Jr., and I have just been convicted of the double homicide of Betty June Binnaker and Mary Emma Thames, ages 11 and 8. By the time June 16th came, I resigned myself to the fact that I was going to die and convinced myself that I was not going to give them white folks the satisfaction of seeing me cry. Of this crime, I'm innocent. I done said it from the beginning, and my contention is not diminished one bit by your bigoted justice system or a death sentence from an all-white jury that deliberated my innocence for a whole of ten minutes. I grabbed my Bible, and the guards walked me down the hall. A door at the end of the hall is all I saw. I walked in the room and handed the attendant my Bible and took a seat. 
but I was so small the straps kept falling off and sliding down around my feet. The attendant looked at me and froze. I was too short to reach the face mask and electrodes. He took a second look and sat me on top of a stack of books. He stretched the electrodes to the limit to reach my head and covered my face with the mask is what he did, all of which was still too big. Then he pulled the switch. My body convulsed and twitched so much that my head came from under the bonnet, exposing my smoking nasal cavity and sizzling vomit. After four minutes, he turned off the power and my head lay tilted, with a sunken face, singed hair, and an eye missing. I'm sharing this with you so I'm not forgotten and the justice system is held accountable and in shame. Even though I may be long gone, don't give up trying to clear my name. My name is George Junior Stinney Jr., and I was executed for the double homicide of Betty June Binnaker and Mary Emma Thames, ages 11 and 8. And to this day, at 14, the youngest ever to be executed in the United States. I'd like to give a big shout out to the producer, Raymond Morales, and uh, the brother who wrote the lyrics, Killer Noise, and everybody involved in this video uh, presentation and audio presentation. Salute to you, brother Spinney. Uh, your name has been cleared. Salute. Salute. It makes me sad, man, to look at that story every time we think about that. It just makes me sad looking at the parallels. Obviously, this yes. brother, uh, Emmett Till, obviously, I mean, you know, Emmett Till possibly more like the, the, the uh, lynch mob style, not entirely the police as we know, as far as we know, but still a young brother that we could not protect, Tamir Rice right now. I mean, Ayanna Jones, I mean, so many of our youth that um, not just killed on the spot, lynched on the spot, but some, like in his case, taken away and put on a public execution, and it just... You know, I, I just think like, what difference would history would history tell? You know, of someone or of several people, you know, being willing to give their lives to go in and try to rescue the child. You know, and we still have that same challenge in front of us right now. We've got less than five minutes left, and still got to do our abolitionist in profile. As much as I want to talk about this, and I know you do too. We are uh, literally do not have the time. So uh, if you have the abolitionist in profile, we could transition right into that. All right. Cue the music, Scotty Reed. Oh, I, it, oh, I'm I'm already pre-recording them. Oh, okay. Go ahead. We're ready. Tobacco Gorano also known as John Stewart, born in 1757 and died sometime after 1791, was an African abolitionist and natural rights philosopher from Ghana who was active in England in the latter half of the 18th century. Captured in present-day Ghana and sold into slavery at the age of 13, he was shipped to Granada in the Lesser Antilles, where he worked on a plantation. In 1772, he was purchased by an English merchant who took him to England where he was taught to read and write, and was freed following the ruling in the Somerset case of 1772. Later working for artists Richard and Maria Cosway, he became acquainted with British political and cultural figures. He joined the Sons of Africa, African abolitionists in England. 
1784, Stewart was employed as a servant by the artist Richard Cosway and his wife Maria. Through the Cosways, he came to the attention of leading British political and cultural figures of the time, including the poet William Blake and the Prince of Wales. Together with Olada Iquano and other educated Africans living in Britain, Stewart became active in the Sons of Africa, an abolitionist group whose members wrote frequently to the newspapers of the day condemning the practice of slavery. In 1786, he played a key role in the case of Henry DeMond, a kidnapped black man who was to be shipped back to the West Indies. Kugoano contacted Granville Sharp, a well-known abolitionist who was able to have DeMond removed from the ship before it sailed. In 1787, possibly with the help of his friend Olada Iquano, Kugoano published an attack on slavery entitled Thoughts and Sentiments on the Evil and Wicked Traffic of the Slavery and Commerce of the Human Species, 1787. By now, a devout Christian, he, he wrote works informed by that religion. His writing called for the abolition of slavery and immediate emancipation of all slaves. It argues that the slave's duty is to escape from slavery and that force should be used to prevent further enslavement. The narrative was sent to King George III, the Prince of Wales, and to Edmund Burke, a leading politician. George III, along with much of the royal family, remained opposed to abolition of the slave trade. Four years later, in 1791, Kugoano published a shorter version of his book addressed to the Sons of Africa. In it, he expressed qualified support for the failed British efforts to establish a colony in Sierra Leone for London's poor blacks, mostly free African-American slaves who had been relocated to London after the American Revolutionary War. Other early settlers were black loyalists, also former American slaves from Nova Scotia, who chose to move to Sierra Leone. Kugoano called for the establishment of schools in Britain, especially for African students. Nothing is known of Kugoano after the release of his book. New Abolitionist Radio salutes Otaba Kugoano, also known as John Stewart. The little brother Kugoano, the first African abolitionist to call for complete abolition. Man, we have so many heroes. By any means necessary. Right, yeah. right. He wasn't saying, y'all enslaved Africans keep it nonviolent now while y'all try to get y'all free. <laughs> hmm. You know why? Because he was a firm believer and he knew good and damn well the reality of what was going on with slavery. He wasn't right. trying he wasn't trying to play that game. He knew how real it was. Slavery don't get better. It gets worse. Hmm. Unless you end it, it gets worse. <laughs> Always. It grows and grows and grows until one day it's covering the whole world. Um final statement, brothers, for the evening. Yeah. Peace to the abolitionists, death to the oppressors. Yeah, I, I just want to again uh, thank our, our listeners for calling in. Thank you, Nancy, for uh, coming and sharing your research with us and your insight into policing uh, in America. I know that took a lot of work and research for you to put that chart together. 
Uh, thank you, Brother Christopher, for calling in and, and sharing the story of the proxy racist judge and, and whatnot, because we got to open people's eyes up to the maximum confusion, all right, that it ain't black versus white or black versus American Indian or black versus Hawaiian or, or any of those things. It's, it's justice versus injustice, okay? And, um, you know, I won't stop as long as I have a breath in my body and my body is able for me to do abolitionist work. I will continue until slavery has finally been abolished once and for all in all its forms. I'm going to keep mine simple. History is a synonym. It's the same crap smelled differently. Remember that abolition is a reason for a revolution so we can finally make some peace. 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 I started in slave ships. There are more records of slave ships than one would dream. It seems inconceivable until you reflect that for 200 years ships sailed carrying barbarian slaves. Be nonviolent. In the face of the violence that we've been uh, experiencing for the past 400 years, is actually doing our people a disservice. In fact, it's a crime. It's a crime. Here come the drums. All right, all right.